Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 39. I wrapped up the last episode with a couple of the people, places, and things found in Judges Chapter 10. These included the place and concept of Shamir. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the text in Judges 11. And with that, let's get started. Chapter 11 begins with the narrative around Jephthah, the Gileadite. And it begins with a bang. He was the son of a lady of the night. Or, as the text reads, something a little more direct. No punches held. I previously covered him in the first part of this chapter of the podcast, so I'll hit the highlights and get right to the new places. Because of his lineage, Jephthah was driven from his homeland by his half-brothers. He fled to the land of Tob, a place I'll get to in a few minutes. While he's an outcast, he forms a gang of marauders who make a living raiding undisclosed people. Given how he was later somewhat welcomed back, the inference is that he wasn't raiding the Israelites, more likely the neighboring Ammonites. Why them? Well, after an unspecified time, the Ammonites attacked the Gileadites, and their leaders went to Jephthah for help. After a bit of discourse, they reach an agreement. If he leads their army to victory over the Ammonites, he will become their leader. This dialogue occurred at Mitzvah, another place I'll get to. Jephthah sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites asking why they attacked. Their unnamed king reminded him that the land they were living on had been in the Ammonites' hands before the Israelites arrived back from the Exodus. Jephthah then gives the king, along with the reader, a bit of an Old Testament ancient history lesson, a lesson that takes up most of this chapter in Judges. One I'll avoid for redundancy purposes. Eventually, he gets to his point that the Ammonites had lost their territory to the Amorites, who then lost it to the Israelites, all of this happening well before what was their current day. While a complete timeline isn't given, Jephthah does say that the Israelites had been living there for 300 years. In other words, any claim the Ammonites had to the land was a bit too dated to be taken seriously. Jephthah added a bit more to his message, essentially telling the Ammonites that they worshipped the wrong god, in their case, the deity Kamosh. Another thing to cover. The Ammonite king didn't care, and war was imminent. But before that, Jephthah makes an ill-conceived vow, one that eventually led to him sacrificing his daughter after his victory over the Ammonites. This may be related to the Jewish tradition known as Tekufat, I'll get to that, too. Finally, there were two more places mentioned. Minith, with its 20 towns, and Abel Karaman. And that's the chapter. Off to the first place, the land atop. Obviously, this was a place either in or near the area occupied by the ancient Israelites, more likely near the Gileadites. So, east of the Jordan, in the modern countries of Jordan, Israel, and Syria. 
It was where Jephthah fled from his half-brothers. When they were overly concerned, he'd get a portion of their inheritance. The actual location is unknown, though some researchers do identify it with the region centering on Tibia, placing it southeast of the Sea of Galilee. This is based on the name Tibia itself, which essentially translates to, we're from Tob, or a closely related phrase. It may be the same place mentioned in 2 Samuel as Ishtop. At least that's how it's found in some translations. Others just simply use Tob. Of the versions I use, only the King James lists Ishtop. Both the NIV and New Revised Standard read Tob. As for this Ishtop, it could simply be a rendering of the phrase Men of Tob in ancient Hebrew. That, at least, seems simple enough. While in Tob, Jephthah assembled some men who were essentially robbers, though the text isn't quite that strong. But it does imply it was a bit of a lawless area, probably on a trade route and in a disputed region, or remote enough that no one bothered policing it. And that's essentially it in the text. Tob does make an appearance in the outside record specifically in the 14th century B.C. Amarna letters. But in these 382 pieces of correspondence, Tob is only mentioned once. And here, the leader, probably a mayor or governor, is mentioned, but not by name. And that's the land of Tob. Next up is Mizpah, literally translating to either watchtower or lookout. And if you think we're running into these places quite a bit, that should give some insight into the place and times. Walled cities, sometimes built on hills, on the defense enough to be employing lookouts for invaders. As for Mitzpah, it was a city in Benjamin's territory. There are two potential sites. The first is Tel Nezabah about 7 miles, 12 kilometers north of the old city of Jerusalem. The other is Nibi Samil, about 5 miles, 8 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem. Both of these places are atop hills, and in the case of the latter, it's on the highest hill in the area, about 600 feet, 180 meters above the plain of Gibeon. I'll have more on these two places in a few minutes. Mizpah was first mentioned in Genesis, where Laban and his son-in-law Jacob made an agreement that God will watch over them while they were apart from each other. This covenant was marked by the piling of rocks as a reminder of the agreement that each would not go beyond these rocks to attack the other. Later, when a Levite's concubine was attacked by the men of Jibiah, the other tribes of Israel met at Mizpah. And there they decided to attack the men of Benjamin for this grievous crime. At the same time, the decision was made not to permit marriage between Israelite women and Benjaminite men. In a story I've touched on many times, after the return of the Ark of the Covenant, lost to the Philistines following the Israelites' defeat at the Battle of Aphek, Samuel gathered all Israel at Mizpah to offer a sacrifice to God and ask him to forgive their sin. Israelites fought off a raid by the Philistines, 
who are trying to take advantage of the assembly, driving them back as far as below Beth Carr. To memorialize this event, Samuel set up a stone between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, meaning the stone of help, because the Lord had helped them. Later, Samuel gathered the people of Israel at Mizpah for God to identify their first king. There, Saul was chosen by Lot from all the tribes and families of Israel. During the reigns of Asa, the king of Judah, and Baasha, the king of Israel, Mizpah was one of the two cities which Asa built up from the stones Baasha had used to fortify Ramah. There's more to that story but it will have to wait until I get to that part of the text. After the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they appointed Gedaliah, the governor of Mizpah, over the remaining residents. Many returned to Mizpah from which they had fled. The prophet Jeremiah came to Mizpah from Ramah, where the Babylonians had released him. Later, Ishmael, a member of the royal family, assassinated Gedaliah. I'll get to why that's meaningful in a minute. And those are the highlights of Mizpah in the text. Circling back to the two potential sites, if Mizpah was Tel Nezabah, then it was on the road to Nablus. And if this is true, then Ishmael would have not likely fled from Ammon via Gibeon. This is because it's located to the west, near Neba Samuel, which overlooks Jerusalem. Simply, it wouldn't have been the most direct route, since Mizpah was located next to Gibeon. In other records, Mizpah is where Judas Maccabeus and his rebel army encamped before the Battle of Emmaus. This was during the Maccabean Revolt and according to the Book of 1 Maccabees. There it reads, Then they gathered together and went to Mizpah, opposite Jerusalem, because Israel formerly had had a place of prayer in Mizpah. Keep in mind that this book is considered canonical by the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, but apocryphal by Protestants. In Maccabeus, Mizpah was said to be in the hills, with the nearby Greeks encamping in the city of Emmaus, which was on the plain. Judas proceeded to hold a religious ceremony at Mizpah, where he picked a smaller force with which to ambush the Seleucid camp the next day. As for the other potential site, Nebi Samuel, much less is known about it. There, archaeological digs have uncovered no Iron Age finds, nor anything from later periods, such as from the times of Judas Maccabeus. But at Tel Nezabah, it has produced numerous finds from both periods. These include a massive fortification. This fort is thought to be part of the building campaign of King Isaiah of Judah in the early 9th century BC. Its location is on the main road leading out of Jerusalem, which also fits well with reference to Mizpah in 1 Kings. All of this means most researchers lean towards Tel and Nezabah, as the location of the biblical Mizpah. And that's it for Mizpah, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll pick up with the Ammonite deity, Kamash. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet, 
at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.